Welcome to a slightly different episode of What's Eric Eating? I'm still your host, Ultramap Food Editor Eric Sandler, but the format is a little different. We're celebrating a few of my favorite podcast episodes of the last year by reposting them into the feed. So many more of you are listening these days, and I think these shows deserve to be heard by all of you. And if you've heard them before, maybe you can listen to them with fresh ears. Whether you're new or a loyal friend and true, I appreciate all of you who have supported this show. I hope to make 2024 our best year yet. Now, on with the show. I am joined this week by the chef owner of Totemo, a Mexican restaurant in Spring Branch. Emmanuel Chavez, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm doing well. Uh, it's been a, an incredible last few months for us here at the, what some call it, the tiny restaurant tiny hidden gem in Houston. So the, the dimly lit. Yes. I want to, I want to talk about, and, and forgive me, I I'm saying to Temo, is it Tatemo? Am I screwing that up? To be honest, we've, I've let go of how people pronounce it. It's, it's up to interpretation at this point, either or it's fine. Okay. Okay. I want to talk about the restaurant. Um, but I, I do, I, I do like to start at the beginning so just tell me a little bit about your background. How did you become interested in being a chef? So I migrated to the States with my family at the age of nine. Uh, both my parents worked at, for the government in Mexico. And when they migrated here to the States, the, their first jobs or the first jobs available to both of them were at Tex-Mex restaurants, uh, which are still up and running. They're actually called Taqueria Tepatitlan. And we didn't, we didn't have the needs or family to hire babysittings uh, or suitors or have us drop off with uh, friends of friends because we didn't know anybody. Uh, so we just stuck around. We had to follow them at work uh, after school. And that's basically my first introduction to the industry, just seeing the line cooks uh, listen to cumbias and Chips being poured into baskets, salsas being poured from water jugs, uh, hearing fajitas sizzle, or the lady chopping lettuce at the back, uh, screaming the enchiladas was, were ready and microwave sounds. And I grew up in that environment. And by that, by the age of 15, when I was old enough to, to step into that environment, uh, I've actually got hired by my parents. One of the, par- one of the restaurants that my parents were, were managing as a dishwasher. Uh, and I started washing dishes there just to to earn some income and trying to like fit in into the whole uh, bad boy, uh, I guess. Yeah, it's got to it's got to kind of seem glamorous, right? When you're a kid, right? Like it's it's hard work, but it's like real grown up money. That's actually got to be like not a terrible thing when you're 16. Absolutely. Are you here with them talking about sex, drugs, uh, whistling? It's not a, it wasn't a kitchen brigade. There was no chefs. There's no systems. There's no protocols. It was you clock in, you talk shit, you do what you got to do. There's no recipes. Just have fun and get out. And like you said, at that age, that was very interesting. And, and I just wanted to be a part of it. All right. So how did you evolve? Because obviously you didn't, you didn't stay as a dishwasher at a Tex-Mex restaurant. How did, how did you get maybe more serious about your craft? After college, not even after college, after high school, uh, my, my family gave me two ultimatums. It was either go to the restaurant and work full time um, as an actual chef for the corporate restaurant or go to culinary school. 
and it was around the time Top Chef uh, was was becoming what it, what it is now. I think it was season five or season six, uh, and just seeing Mark. I think it was Michael Otagio being one of the first chefs with tattoos and and the whole era of uh, molecular and sophistication and foams and all those sorts of things were being uh, starting to to come out. And that really intrigued me in the beginning. I no longer was interested in the fajita aspect of a of the industry. I wanted to see what a foam tasted like, or what, because no one was doing it here in the city at that at that point, at least not to my knowledge. Uh, so I, I, I guess I started to take it a little bit more serious uh, after watching Top Chef and and open my my eyes to to what's really out there. All right. So did you go to culinary school in Houston, or did you go somewhere else? No, I, I did, but I went on for like two months and I dropped out. It was, the structure wasn't for me. Uh, luckily, I went to San Jacinto College and they had a culinary program. And luckily, I was curious enough to to ask questions uh, that I I guess I caught the chef's instructor's attention. And he set me up with a stash at the, at the River Oaks Country Club uh, under uh, Charles Carroll. Okay. That was actually my first actual job. So you went to the Riverwood Country Club. Where did you go after that? After that, I stuck around a few country clubs around city. I did Briar Club uh, for four years, and I went in to become a sous chef at the what's that uptown hotel, Hotel Grand Duca. I was a sous chef at Hotel Grand Duca. I had no idea what I was doing. I was 24 years old. I was very eager to to learn how to manage people. Uh, that was probably my best experience so far just the responsibility of managing and budgeting a hotel with no actual uh, industry or live experience was very challenging. Uh, and, and, that's and, getting, and getting a bunch of people who are older than you to, you know, respect you when you're, you know, basically a 24 year old dumbass. It's gotta be it. Right. It, that didn't, that didn't go, it didn't go well for me. No, I wouldn't think so. All right. Not so when did you go to, when did you leave Houston? Cause I know you went to Seattle for a little while. It was that summer, that summer when I was 20, I was 25 years old, Instagram started becoming a huge thing. People were posting uh, pictures of food like crazy. The whole pop-up uh, era had already starting in LA and New York, and it was making its way down here into Houston, thanks to uh, Dinner Lab and Aces of Taste. Um, so I took that little format and started hosting pop-ups at my house for eight people, selling tickets on Instagram. And it was just three courses, super simple, salad, uh, appetizer and uh and an entree no desserts just straightforward uh, there were tickets for 55 bucks and i was just doing that during the weekends and somehow a chef from seattle uh started following my my instagram reached out to me he's like hey uh, i see a lot of nordic uh noma cuisine or inspired dishes on your plating if you're ever interested to actually learn where these things are coming from or, or how to take them to the next level uh come up come and help me open a few uh, restaurant hotels here in Seattle. And honestly, I didn't even bother to, to look him, look him up. I took his board for it. I sold everything I had and drove across the country. I think mo- a month after we interacted on social media and the rest was history. So tell me a little bit about that time in Seattle. Like where were you working? What did you, what did you take from that, that experience? In Seattle, in Seattle I was working on there, Eric Rivera and Derek Schmick. Uh, they were both uh, French Laundry and Noma uh, alums. Uh, a lot of them 
a lot of our sous chefs and chefs of cuisine had uh, experience in three Michelin star restaurants. So the restaurants that we worked at were Scout, Conversation, and the bookstore. There were three under the same umbrella of hotels. So we were bouncing around a lot. Uh, two of them were tasting menus, and then the other one was more of a, a la carte, uh, but still had uh, a lot of fine dining aspects to the menu or whatnot. It was, when I tell you, it was the most humbling experience of my life. I kid you not. I walked into a kitchen with guys who had immense amount of talent, passion, and discipline that you wouldn't, I, I didn't think I was going to survive. There's a lot of times that I thought I was going to come back home with my head down because uh, of how brutal and how fast-paced that city is. It's almost like a New York City, uh, but cleaner and, and I want to say more, more efficient. Uh, there's a lot of money out there because of Amazon, so paying as well. The average, the average salary out there, it's, I think for a chef, it's probably like 90K, which is crazy. Uh, cooks are making about 20 to $22 an hour. Uh, and I mean, it, it's incredible to see, to experience that, that lifestyle while being in our industry. Uh, it's just discipline that I've learned, to be honest. Uh, taking those shortcuts, uh, respecting, uh, respecting the actual kitchen, uh, people, people's time, to be honest, diners' times, uh, there's no, there's no right or wrong answer. There's no limits. There's no reason why we can't question everything that we do. Why still align the guests to have an amazing experience. It's Seattle definitely changed my life. Yeah. So why did you decide to leave Seattle and come back to Houston? Well, in Seattle, when Harvey happened here in Houston, I was gathering, I was trying to make, do a pop-up out there in Seattle to, uh, to send money or funds or canned goods uh, to family and friends out here. And when I was creating the, the pop-up, I had to cost out my ingredients uh, and whatnot and create a budget to submit it to the, to the hotel to, so they can allow me to see if it was uh, profitable for either or. And like I said, one of the chefs was, was uh, from Alinea. He was a creative director for them for seven years. He had unlimited resources he had traveled all over the world he had seen every every kitchen that you can think of that was on the top whatever list at that point he had been there he had cooked with those guys uh so when i in, i gave him my my list of ingredients and, and whatnot he saw that i had maseca on them and he ripped it apart he actually took the list shredded apart threw it in my face and told me if i've ever wanted to be taken seriously in this industry i need to I need to look up where I actually come from and learn how to cook my cuisine that represents who I am and walked away. Right. I mean, so, so just to be clear, right. You had worked at a Tex-Mex restaurant, but you never really made interior Mexican food or traditional Mexican food. You went to Seattle, you were doing new Nordic. I mean, you, you know, the thought of like, nixtamalizing corn, I guess until that moment had never really been part of your, your plan. I had no idea what nixtamalized was, to be honest. I, I would, I was, I've always, I worked under French, Italian, uh, Pakistani influenced chefs. I've never actually looked into cooking Mexican food and I never took it seriously. And I was very naive and, and ignorant to say the least at that, at that stage in my life. Okay. So how did you go about educating yourself about Mexican cooking? 
Uh, so that happened. Uh, he gave me, he, I guess he felt bad. He took me out for drinks um, two, two weeks later, the chef, Eric. Uh, and he gave me a, a, a little booklet of Maseca. Uh, he told me all the ingredients that were not good for you and whatnot. And then he gave me a website to Macienda, which wasn't at the time or it is now an LA-based uh, company that helps import uh, native seeds. He told me to, to reach out to them and start doing some research uh, to see where these seeds were coming from. And he gave me a list of like five, six chefs that were actually importing seeds. And he gave me just, he introduced me to all the information that was already out there. Uh, again, no one was doing it in Seattle at the, at the point. There was not a lot of Mexican uh, restaurants or mills and whatnot. We're talking about like almost seven years ago. Tortillas were not popping or they weren't popular like they are now. So it was, the resources were, the, the information was there, but it wasn't as easy as knocking at someone's restaurant and being, hey, can I come in Stasha and learn how to do this, especially not in Seattle. Uh, so that, that kind of helped me and introduced me to a whole community of people who were actually doing it and have been doing it. And it was just like a, I don't know if you've ever gone on Reddit at one in the morning and you just, it's a, it's a black hole. It's a nonstop forms of information and you just, you just lose yourself in it. And that's kind of what happened with, with myself. Yeah. It's like, you know, you're listening to, like a playlist on Spotify and you hear a song and you're like, Oh, that reminds me of this song and this song. And, mm-hmm. and like all of a sudden it's two hours later and you've got, you know, you're, you're way down a rabbit hole that you never even exactly. expected to be. Exactly. All right. So how did you kind of get from the, the reading stage to the cooking stage or, or, you know, how did you start to kind of develop the, the techniques that would ultimately form the basis of Totemo? Well, first of all, it was, I had, a, I had to be honest with myself, I had, had no money to, to buy machinery or whatnot. So I had to work on speed uh, to making tortillas. Whether Maseca, I, I was reading the information of nexamalizing and where the seeds were coming from and all that, but I still had to actually do the work and the repetition and kind of like sports, right? You may not, it's like practice. You still have to practice, even though you don't, you don't start or play, but you still have to show up and, and do the reps, do the work, uh, read the plays, uh, read the other team's plays. So that's how I basically took it. Uh, I studied as much as I possibly could, but I still had to do reps and repetitions. So I wasn't, I took the last year that I was in Seattle, I told uh, myself that I was going to do family meal every day till I felt like it was time for me to, to move on uh, using masa product or maseca just to kind of get a, a hand of how things tasted or, or speed or whatnot. And that's basically what I did for my last year in Seattle just made tortillas and tamales until people were tired of eating them. Uh, and I started posting that more on Instagram. I clear my Insta. I always knew that Instagram was going to be a way for me to find investors. Uh, it was a way that I found a, a, a job opportunity and I've never had the opportunity to, to have uh, or type a resume because people would just hire me from word of mouth or introduce me to other people and kind of pull me to different sizes. So I, I always knew that Instagram was going to be a way for me to, to get my career further uh, somewhere or somehow. I just didn't know how. Uh, so I cleared my Instagram, started posting more pictures of tortillas and how to press them and little videos and whatnot. And that's when people started to reach out to me more. I'm like, hey, have you heard of this this person? Have you seen this thing? Uh, and then, like I said, I didn't realize there was already a community out there of chefs and, and home cooks that uh, basically gave me my, my eye opener and introduction to the industry to Mexican food and it just it took off after that 
who was particularly helpful? Like who kind of influenced your direction? Alvero, Vero Alvin. Uh, she used to teach at Rice University. She reached out to me on Instagram one day from Seattle and introduced me to a gentleman that was uh, starting a foundation to preserve seats, uh, special seats in, in Mexico. Uh, and he was charging classes or seminars via Zoom uh, for like $20 just to save up to help fund farmers in Mexico uh, to continue to, to, to seed and, and harvest uh, these seeds. And uh, after she made the introduction with him, that completely took me to that not only picked my interest to an, another stage, it became almost obsessive at that point because I, I felt like I was at this point, I was already like nine, 10 years into cooking. I was getting into that stage of my life. Like, what am I going to do? Like for real, am I, do I really want to read tickets, uh, fire cheeseburger or fire two salmon or my whole life? Or do I really want to uh, start over or, and, and make an impact and, and be inspired or inspire myself to, to keep going another 10 years. Talk about kind of coming home and, and, and developing this concept, because I think, I think the first time I met you, it was like 2020 and you had started, uh, you were like, you were like one of these like little pandemic startups. Like I, I ordered a, uh, a Toyota from you. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, so when we moved back or when I moved back to, uh, from Seattle, my first initial idea was to, okay, I need money. I had no money to start a restaurant. What are restaurant costs? Uh, people were not understanding the concept of what the demo was going to be, but to be fair, neither did I in its early stages. And that's something that I tell people all the time that please, whenever you feel like you think you know what you want on a restaurant or you want, or you have this restaurant aspirations, write it down cost it out. Uh, it's not the same thing as your vision and your actual goals are not going to match. You got to sacrifice your wants and needs, and you got to work through a lot of, a lot of things that you don't even think exist before you even open the doors of anything, any type of restaurant and any source of format. Uh, so find actually writing down a business plan was the first thing after doing that, finding some a location where I was able to do pop-ups, to kind of like test the concept and have people introduce myself, kind of like reintroduce myself to the city, which was, it's kind of like your PR, so to speak, uh, just because you're young and there's Instagrams doesn't mean that people are going to connect with you. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of talent in, in this city. There's a, it's a massive city. Uh, how are you going to stand out? You know, you have your OGs, you have the, the second generation after those, and then you have the, the new guys, the upcoming guys. Okay, like, where do you fit in? Who are you going to reach out to? Do you have to reach out to anybody? Is this something that's some, it's already been done in the city? And if it has, how can you do it Do it better? So I just, I literally wrote a 20-page 20, 20 uh, playbook uh, of how I wanted to tackle it. And everything that I wrote down, I felt that uh, my first pop-ups that I tried to do did not sell. I felt uh, the second location that I secured for a pop-up had no kitchen. And I failed. Uh, and I just went back, wrote everything down, wrote my failures, wrote what I what I did like, what I didn't like, how I can do it better. And little by little, I just started developing my own my own rhythm. Again, like we said, like we said, I had never cooked Mexican food ever. At I was doing tweezer food, uh, tasting menus in Seattle for most of my stay out there. Uh, everything was new to me. All those fl flavor profiles or or the produce here in Houston was new to me. I was I was so used to like 
Seattle produce, Pacific Northwest produce. Then when I came back here the first year, I struggled to even put a menu together because I didn't know what anything tasted like. I didn't know what people wanted to eat. It was it was it was pretty bad. Okay, but I I mean obviously you're you figured it out. Was there like a moment when you started to feel like maybe this is maybe this is actually going to work out during the pandemic? Uh, so I actually, through those uh, pop-ups, I did secure a location to a restaurant downtown and I did secure business partners that threw me a lot of money. Uh, and we were in the process of signing a lease, but because the location was so close to a hotel, we needed uh, we needed something on our lease had said that we weren't allowed to use a parking or the valet for the restaurant. And then we had to tap into a separate grease trap. There was just little things that you never, like as a cook, you don't think about that start to come up when you have an actual lease in front of you. Uh, so when we send, so when my partner send it to the to the lawyers to like look it up and and see if it was true or not, if we were gonna be able to, to move forward, uh, the pandemic hit and it completely negotiations shut down. My partners back down, investors back down, and I had this sense of relief because I didn't I didn't want to do it. I didn't, I had a good feeling that that was not gonna be a good location. Well, our, my partners and the investors, everybody had an opinion about what the restaurant was going to look like and it should be. And it, it had nothing to do with what I was envisioning doing. Uh, so just the, the simple fact that that host, that demo B.1 scrapped uh, was a huge relief. Uh, it gave me clarity. It gave me peace of mind. And then it, it kind of just, it helped me really understand that a foundation and I use the word foundation a lot because at that stage we had had not produced one tortilla that I was proud of and we were about to open a fucking 80 seater restaurant in downtown uh yeah so I was yeah. like okay this is this is not gonna work so I went back to, to square one I'm like I'm just gonna learn how to make tortillas from scratch once I feel like I'm good then I can start again and thinking about maybe opening something up yeah because you I mean you built slowly, you know, you got into Urban Harvest. At first it was just tortillas and you started doing some brunch items. Um, I mean, how important was that phase to your development of this concept? Without Urban Harvest, we don't exist for sure. A thousand percent. And I say that with the most respect. When Tyler reached out to us about selling tortillas at, at the market, I, I honestly thought it was a joke. I thought he was playing with us. I just didn't understand why he would think that a guy selling tortillas from his apartment will kind of like make sense to sell. I didn't, I didn't think he understood or knew that I was making tortillas at, from my apartment, from my seven, 700 square foot apartment in Montrose. Yeah. I'm going to say that he didn't because there's, there's rules about, you know, using a commercial kitchen and all that kind of, but yes, I, he probably didn't know that. Right. So um, when we filed the permits for that, then we had a uh, we, we had a request or borrow or rented a ghost kitchen for us to be able to to get into the market. But like you said, the pandemic happened. We used Instagram again to like start selling items here and there, deliver them ourselves within a, a limited or a reasonable area. And again, that fell completely because people were very. There's one thing about Houston: if you want to open a, a restaurant in Houston, you gotta have the the community support you. I don't even think they care if you're talented or not. If they if they click with you and if they, they believe in you, they'll come out and support. And I, I feel like that's kind of what happened with us. I knew that our tortillas in the beginning were not great. 
but I feel like people were excited to see the process being made at someone trying to make them at home uh, and learning all, along the way with them that people were starting to buy them. And we started selling like four or five dozen in the beginning uh, and then six, seven, and then it gradually became more than we can chew. And that's kind of, we started like, okay, we can't just sell tortillas because we can't keep up. Let's do items. Let's, let's sell tlayudas. Let's sell sopes to kind of like offset the, the demand on the tortillas. Uh, and I think that's how I'm, I met you. That's how I met Matt. And that's how Tyler somehow ended up with a package of tortillas at his home, at his house. Right. Because, you know, through Matt, you kind of get to the, the restaurant space, um, the black lab space in Montrose. And that, that's kind of where this, this concept really started to take shape, right? Cause you could, you could make the tortillas in the kitchen and then you could start doing the tasting menus. What do you, I guess, maybe talk about kind of that, that time of, of getting that, the restaurant component off the ground and, and kind of how it led you to, to where you are now. Well, I think after the, after we met Matt, we had already started, started the urban harvest and we were there for like two, three months. Uh, so that was already taken off. We were already making a hundred dozen, uh, almost up to 200 dozen tortillas on a weekly basis. So, and that itself was a challenge because again, no one knew who we were. Some people don't, a lot of people care, but there was a lot of people that will throw their money at us and will tell us that this is not authentic, that we completely bastardizing our, our culture for charging 77 cents a tortilla. Uh, there was people telling us that we're not going to last, that this is just a face like sourdough. Uh, people, I'm not kidding. People will tell us and tell us to fuck off, that there's no way in hell that we'll be here next year, that this is just a little pandemic uh, fl- fleek or flu. And I still remember sometimes Megan, because Megan will go to the markets with me. She'll look at me and you can see the, the emotion of like, damn, I, I don't think we're going to be here next year. And I will tell her like, don't, don't worry about it. Like people are entitled to their opinions. Uh, we don't have to reciprocate. We don't have to engage. Just take it with a grain of salt. Right. It's about, yell that, yell a- that by strangers sucks, right? Like, it, you know, that's, that's uncomfortable. Uh, right. But but at the same time, you were also getting a lot of positive feedback too. Oh, for sure. We got into the Chronicle, then the, the whole Gordon Ramsay started, uh, and those two things kind of meshed together and it created our wholesale account to ref, to to other restaurants. And that itself, the whole after that, then that's when Matt actually came in and he's like, "Okay, uh, there's a space available for you guys to to take this wholesale aspect of it into the next phase or push it." So it's no longer a thing. Uh, let me know if you want to use it. Uh, but there's a catch. There's another guy. There's a guy making ice cream from his apartment, kind of like you guys. Uh, the catch is that you guys have to share the space. And we were like, whatever it takes for us to continue this momentum that we've built, we'll do it. And that's how we made Josh through Matt. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember, you know, just, just for the audience, just to sort of clarify, the Matt is Matt Harris, who's who's on the show all the time. Um, Josh is Josh DeLeon of Underground Creamery. Correct. I mean, that, you know, beyond whatever sort of personal friendship you guys, it's sort of amazing that you guys hit it off. Um, but but then you started doing these night markets and kind of fostering this whole community of creators. And it really, it, it felt like kind of a special moment. It really was. I mean, do you have like a favorite memory from from 
those markets or or because because it really it, it it really like if looking at kind of now it's like you know it started it it contributed to the growth of pudgies it contributed to the growth of neo it contributed you know all of these kind of businesses that are are thriving in 2023 got a real boost from those those night markets you guys did in 2020 oh for sure uh, the markets happened literally because the night we wanted to throw a house party to be on to be fair to be completely transparent we wanted i wanted to throw a party at the flag lab uh i wanted to, to invite as many as people that i wanted i wanted people to have fun i wanted to be unlimited drinking music and all that i want the community to come together uh but that idea got shut down completely by matt he's like well hold up <laughs> this is a space this is a, a viral space it's not our space there's there's still protocols it's a ghost kitchen but there's protocols and people that we gotta ask permission to and i was like okay well, what if we make it almost like a market at night uh, i understand like i knew there was markets already uh but, but not like this you know like you said we we were very smart to use josh as clickbait he's very he's charming he's a hell of a promoter uh underground cream reads in the best ice cream in our city so it, he was very hesitant at first to do him because he didn't want to get involved in the process of filing permits and all that and having to be responsible for others vendors success so like okay josh just promote it we'll take care of the rest uh then megan came in she formalized it for us she made sure that to be fair megan my partner she's the only reason anything is possible she that girl is amazing if we ever get a james green nomination her name should be on it and it shouldn't be mine she was a reason that took our mark, little hidden markets and created them what they were. She did all the, the graphic design. She made sure all the vendors had permits. She made sure that everyone was on part. Everyone got paid. Uh, Matt was the, the one facilitating the whole thing. Uh, he knew of the list. He knew what we needed. Uh, he made them better. Uh, we kept moving them around. We went from five vendors to six vendors to eight vendors to I think we hosted the top the guys from Top Chef that season while the season was still airing. Uh, at that time, we didn't know that Gabe was the champ, the winner, uh, but he was out there with us cooking in a parking lot like like nothing. And I don't think I've ever seen a parking lot so full at a market like those. Yeah, I I was there that night, and it was yeah, it was like Gabe Morales was at one ten, and mm -hmm. Don Burrell was at another. Sasha and, was there. Right. Sasha was there and it's just like, it's like, okay, this is, this is pretty intense. The Neo guys were doing, you know, uh, Nigiri sets. I mean, like it was bonkers. Um, yeah. All right. So we've, we've rambled on for like, you know, 20 minutes already. And we, we still haven't really talked about the restaurant. You, you opened about a year ago um, in this little tiny space next to Carbock Brewery. I mean, what's it been like? I mean, how's it how's it going? How do you kind of feel about uh, the response you've received? I mean, you you were on basically, you know, every local best year restaurant list of the year. You you, you got an Esquire. I, I mean, you 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 know, for for all the people who told you to fuck off at the farmers market, you know, this is the giant middle finger right back to them. I guess yeah, you can say that. I mean, it's it's only been one year. We take it with a grain of salt. Uh, we've always done the idea of the restaurant was always to be one of the best restaurants in the city. Never in our wildest dream did we think that people were going to believe that year one. 
but we wanted to make sure that we believed it ourselves for the years to come. We know it's a long row. We know it's a long five years. It's a lot. We don't want to burn out. We don't want to feel like we can chew more than we that we can. So we kept the space small. Uh, the space used to be a juice bar. And I don't think people understand that, that we've taken what it used, a juice bar used to be into a fine dining destination, Mexican restaurant. So that itself is a challenge on its own. Uh, the fact that it's next to a church, next to a donut shop, uh, the fact that it's that we don't have any investors at this point or any big name chef promoting us or helping us out was a challenge on, it, on its own. It's literally been blood, tears, and sweat that we were able to build this, this business and this restaurant. And as soon as we started hiring the proper people to help us believe in that vision, I think we took it to another step. The first few times or the first three months that we opened, we were really bad. We were probably one of the worst restaurants in the world, uh, but we never gave up. We, again, it's, it's repetition. It's believing. It's discipline. It's understanding the demographic. Uh, there's a reason why we do brunch, even if we don't like it, because we're here until 1.30 in the morning, sometimes on Saturdays, and we have to show up the next day. It's understanding your demographic, your location, and your identity as a cook or a chef. And I think making tortillas, and at, at this point, now that I'm almost three years into them, making delicious and great tortillas has given me a confidence to to keep pushing and keep trying and keep learning and just keep going as, as, on, in my own pace. I, I'm in no rush to anything. Yeah. Talk about kind of creating these menus because there's so many different, you know, sopas, quesadillas, tacos, you know, all with different fillings, all with different ingredients. Like how do you, how do you sort of conceive of these progressions that, that, you know, obviously they have to satisfy the customer, but, but you, you also have like a, you know, an ethos of, of showcasing all these different sort of corn based preparations. I think it took a little bit of inspiration from what Johnny was doing and inspiration, Johnny Rhodes, uh, former Indigo. Uh, we want to tell a story, but we don't want to feel like when you dine with us that you're being slapped with information that you're probably not going to remember and you're probably not going to hear or care for, to be honest, to be fair, during your, during your meal. Like we want, we want you to know and we want you to walk away with a sense of, okay, these guys, they know exactly what they're doing and where they're sourcing. And they're not shoving it in my face. I'm also able to, to have a conversation with whoever, well, whomever I'm dining with. So that was very important for us. Uh, as far as ingredients, we wanted to keep it as local as possible. I think people think, or people want to put us in a Mexican box. And to be fair, we are. I am a Mexican chef. It is a Mexican maize concept. All the maize is imported from Mexico, but we're not a Mexican restaurant by no means. I mean, we're a Houston restaurant. Everything that we source as far as produce, it's from within cities. I think the only thing besides the maize, it's the caviar from, from Holland and the Campachi from Baja California. Other than that, it's Texas produce, you know, Texas. That's a Texas restaurant inspired by maize. So it's maize driven. That's how we like to identify ourselves. And the two settings have to match, you know, brunch. It's basically the, the hybrid of, of the tastings. All of our mise en place from the tastings end up at brunch. So it allows us to have a, a low food cost, uh, low on labor, because the servers are actually trained cooks on Sundays uh, to execute these this items that require no, no actual like intense or tweezers. It's literally just muscle shape. It's heated up. 
see, taste it, make it taste good, and have people enjoy it. Well, and and I I like the the brunch. You know, I was just there a couple of weeks ago because it gives people an on ramp, right? Like, not everybody necessarily wants to spend one hundred and twenty five dollars on a tasting menu. Not not even from like a value, not not questioning the value of it. But, but just that, you know, I recognize that's beyond the budgets of some people. But a lot more people, you know, might like a $10 quesadilla or a $12 order of masa pancakes. And, and it gives them the chance to kind of visit you and decide for themselves, like, whether to splurge on the tasting menu. Yeah, no, it's two different demographics, like you said, for sure. Uh, and I think we definitely, the moment that we identify that, we took advantage of it. It's the same thing with the taco takeovers when we invite people to come here. It's a whole different demographic that people actually enjoy eating tacos. I don't mind waiting in line for whatever amount of hours. It's something that people enjoy. It's like people ask us all the time, how come we don't do the night markets anymore? Well, now we have the takeovers and it's the same amount of waiting time. So, and yeah. that's less hassle. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, you've been kind of, it. I try not to take you too seriously on Instagram. You know, yeah, I don't, don't. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's, I, I, th- I don't think that's smart. But you have been sort of talking a little bit about, you know, being nominated for a James Beard Award. Um, obviously, any restaurant in Houston that aspires to be the best rest among the best restaurants in the city. I mean, is that a, is that a serious aspiration for you? Like, what do you what do you feel like you have to do to get to that level? It's definitely a serious aspiration for sure. I, I told the team the other day uh, during our pre-ships, let's let's be completely realistic. With each other, we probably won't be nominated uh, in a couple months, 2023. We are barely on people's radars, but there's no reason why we can't be on 2024. There's no reason why we shouldn't be at the, at that stage, almost getting two years, one of the best restaurants uh, out there. Uh, but we got to we gotta believe and we got to work and we got to fix our mistakes and we got to continue to create what we've created and, and share with people. I think sharing the knowledge, sharing... Uh, the process of what it takes to to open a business on your own, it's what's gonna get us get us there. Uh, we definitely have people cheering for us. Uh, we're starting to cook with more James Beard nominated uh, nominees. Uh, we started last year. This year, our takeovers are all James Beard nominees. Uh, there's a few winners out there on the on our takeovers coming to the city. We have a few collaborations with a lot of. Uh, James Beer uh, winners. So I think just being among, among that group will, will put us on a whole different light. So we can. You want to give us a preview? You want to? You want to tease? Uh, who's coming? Who's coming to town? No, not yet. But I'm, I'm sure people. If people liked Alex Vermont and people went nuts for that, I think people are going to be extremely pleased with uh, this year with our takeovers. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do feel like that was a really important moment for you professionally to have someone of Alex's character uh, caliber rather talent who's worked at who worked at Pujol and and you know to for him to recognize you as a peer and to want to cook with you and and collaborate with you I think that that speaks very well of of kind of where you are on this path I think yeah for sure I think that it definitely gave us uh the confidence uh to keep pushing and to keep learning and to to understand that the foundation of a restaurant it's always going to be a tortilla and we're going to pride ourselves in the tortilla. You've been to the space. We are no, we don't shy away from saying that it's not the prettiest space. Like I mentioned earlier, it used to be a juice bar. We don't have investors. We're not going to spend ridiculous amount of money to make it 
appealable to people who want to come for just for Instagram and for a moment. But what we've created, it's created a space where people are proud to say that Demos in Houston City, it's in Houston, Texas, and it's the best or one of the best representatives as far as Mexican or tortillas that we know of on this side of the border. And we take a lot of pride on that. And I think that solidified uh, the whole Alex dinner solidified that for us. Right. And then, so, I mean, you know, you're growing, right. You're, you're adding uh, a third night of dinner service. You're adding Saturday lunch in addition to Sunday brunch, but, but what are your aspirations for the next year? I mean, how do you, you know, how do you get to that James Beard nominee level? I think by being more accessible to people, which is why we decided to do the other two services. We're starting, uh, like you said, tastings on Thursdays and lunch on the 19th, 14th and the 19th of this month are the additional services. I think that was going to allow people to experience the, the space and the, the maze at a faster rate than just on the weekends and whatnot. And we're bringing back the, the takeovers and we're not going to stop. They're going to be two per month consistently all throughout the year. Uh, and like I said, all of, all, of, all of our guests are either nominees or actual winners. So that should definitely help out. All right. Well, Emmanuel, this has been this has been really great. Before I let you go, we have to play the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Usually I ask chefs what their favorite ingredient is. I think we've we've got yours pretty well figured out. So inspired by your Instagram, let me ask you, what's your favorite Drake song? Oh, Lucy. What is the first band you ever saw in concert? Uh, actually, Drake. <laughs> He's not a band, but right. first concert. Performer, yeah. yeah. What, is, uh, what is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. Oh, Whataburger. Who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Uh, Brian Ching. When you're going out for tacos, what is your, what is your favorite taco filling? Oh, I don't eat tacos, but you give me a Cuban and I'm the happiest guy or <laughs> any sandwich. Fair enough. All right. Uh, Emmanuel, give us the, the website and the social media for Totemo. Uh, it's info at Totemo, Houston.com. The web, that's for the website. And then for the Instagram, Totemo uh, at HTX.com. Uh, Totemo HTX on Instagram, uh, Totemo HTX.com, right, is the website. Correct. All right. Thanks for listening to this re-air of one of my favorite episodes of What's Eric Eating. We'll be back with new shows beginning January 9th. Happy holidays. Happy holidays.